Today, we are going to talk about the abomination of desolation. The first thing we might ask is, what is an abomination? An abomination is a foul thing, an unclean thing. We often see it used in the Old Testament to describe idols or idolatrous practices or unethical behavior. In Deuteronomy 29, 16 through 17, Moses is speaking and he says this, for you know that we dwell in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. Right. So there's the, this idolatry is an abomination uh, to the Lord. We talked about uh, Christians and their and their their pride uh, over divorce and remarriage, which Jesus says is, is an adultery. These Christians who are all uh, condoning adultery are quick to point out that Leviticus says that uh, homosexuality is an abomination. But if you look in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18, 20 and 27, adultery, laying with your neighbor's wife is also listed as an abomination. So these practicers of abominations are calling out those who practice abominations and Jesus will judge that kind of judgment. So these are kind of uh, sexual immoralities, which are abominations. We have um, uh, also, we might ask, uh, what is uh, desolation? This is more straightforward. The word means devastation or destruction or abandonment. And this is a, a, a Hebrew phrase derived from the prophet Daniel. And um, it means the, de the detestable thing that causes desolation. Some translations will say, will say this, the abomination which causes desolation. Uh, either are fine. The abomination of desolation, the abomination which causes desolation. Um, the former is more kind of formally equivalent to the Greek and the latter is more dynamically equivalent. We'll go through and show how it's an abomination that causes a desolation. But I will say that the abomination of desolation right up front, so, so we, we know uh, the way that I interpret it, this is, this is debated, this gets into the realm of debate, right? Um, the abomination of desolation is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And so the, the Roman invasion is the abomination which causes desolation. And there were two precursors prior to this, I would say. Um, there was an Edomite uh, invasion, army invasion, which also um, destroyed much of Jerusalem. And then prior to this, the, he mentions Daniel, that kind of immediate fulfillment uh, is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period, which also caught, was an abomination, which caused uh, a desolation. I guess I'll also, um, the, we'll, the, another thing that we'll go through here is the desolation or the devastation of the destruction, what happens is it's basically when foreigners come in and the sacrifices cease. Uh, that's that's really what's going on. So there's kind of a desecration of the temple and then the sacrifices of the Levitical system are are um, either uh, temporarily abbreviated or what we will see here with what Jesus is talking about um, uh, indefinitely um, uh, taken away. OK, so a couple things to note about our passage. Jesus is giving his hearers practical advice. Uh, this is this is real warning. This is when you see this run, when you see what's happening here, get out of Judea, flee. So he's giving. So he's warning them. Of, and he says, if you see, you know, these things, you hear these things, know that I've told you these beforehand. 
So we know that there's this great tribulation coming and he's saving his people from that. And prior to, he does say that his disciples will suffer a certain kind of tribulation. But then he kind of ups the ante and the wicked are going to suffer an even greater tribulation. And he's saving his people from this. We'll get into a lot of this later. He talks about these false Christs and these false prophets. And during this time, it's just wild. You see this kind of thing happening. But we're focusing on the abomination of desolation today. He also says the, 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 when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, oftentimes this gets into the nexus of an antichrist kind of exalting himself in the temple. And if you think about that, that's kind of strange because if they're already in the temple, then you're kind of too late. How can you flee at that point? So I would take this standing in the holy place, not necessarily to be the temple itself, but to be the holy land. That is also a holy place. It's a set apart land. In the Old Testament, this is always called uh, the, the holy land in Zechariah 2.12. And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. So I don't think that it has to be specifically standing in the, in, in the holy place of the temple, although we do see that. I would say they can be standing in Judea. They can be standing in Israel. The second thing to consider, and this is kind of one of the key, key aspects of this, is uh, the parallel passage of Luke illuminates what the abomination of desolation is. In Luke, we read this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Okay? So I would say the armies there are the abomination which is about to cause the desolation. Jesus says, when you see this, flee. Okay. Um, in Daniel 9, he, he mentions, uh, mentions the prophecy of Daniel. We're not going to get into this because this gets quite complicated quite fast. But we're going to read a couple of these things because it reinforces what I'm saying here about um, what the abomination of desolation is, that it, it causes um, a ceasing of the sacrifices in, in the temple. So Daniel 9, uh, the 70 weeks, this is, this is quite a debated passage, but, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, so we have this destruction of the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. It's interesting that he uses the word wings there of abomination because he will get into this uh, shortly. But he talks about uh, where the carcass is there, the eagle will be. And we'll, and we'll see that there's actually a connection between the abomination and what an eagle is. Earlier in the passage, Daniel says, Now therefore, our God, hear the, hear the prayer of your servant in a supplication for the Lord's sake, because uh, your face, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Okay, so when is he writing? When is Daniel writing this prophecy? And any, anybody know? Dur right, during the Babylonian exile. And... Why would he, and why is the, he says, he says your temple is, your sanctuary is desolate. Right, it's been destroyed. So the sacrifices have ceased. So we have this, again, pairing of desolation with the ceasing of the sacrifices. Okay. 
Yeah, uh, we, we read this in uh, Second King. This is also just as, a, as an aside, we don't have to bring in extra biblical history. Uh, but Second Kings 25 says that uh, Nebuzaradan, which is Nebuchadnezzar's chief uh, general, he destroys it with fire. You can read that in Second uh, Kings 25. Okay. Um, uh, we're going, so Daniel also mentions the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11. Uh, it says, at the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, uh, for ships from Cyprus shall come against them. So this is from the west of uh, Israel. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant and forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Okay. Defilement of the sanctuary. And then in that, and then the taking away of the sacrifice and there's an abomination of desolation in that place. And then lastly, in Daniel, um, we have this, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, this is in Daniel 12, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end, which as an aside, Daniel's words are sealed up and they, they actually are fulfilled within 200 and 400 years. And if we look, there's a, there's another vision given to John and the angel says, don't seal this up because this is going to happen soon. So we can, logically derived from that, that the things in Revelation were going to happen within at least 200 to 400 years. And we know that it came much sooner than that as well. It came within a few years. But he says, many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from that time, the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be uh, 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits and comes to the, uh, the 1,335 days. But you uh, go your way until the end and you shall rest and will arise in your, your inheritance at the end of days. Um, real quickly, these days here, uh, I don't have it totally mapped out, but if you add it up, it's about seven years. And that's how long the, 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 war, the war of the Jews in Jerusalem lasted. It started in 66 AD. They start rebelling against Rome. Vespasian is sent. Um, and then the, it's just a hellscape until AD 70. The, the, the temple is destroyed, but you still have holdouts in, um, is it Masada? The Masada? the holdouts in Masada where they all committed suicide, that extends all the way to 73. So you have this seven year period, which I think these days here are, um, there's, they're, they're, they apply to this. And I think it might be before and then after the destruction of the temple. Um, but we see here the abominations of desolation that there's the taking away of the sacrifice um, in this passage as well. Um, okay, so that is Daniel. Now there's general agreement that a lot of these uh, prophecies applied to Antiochus Epiphanes, um, that they actually, so from this time, he's living in the Persian, uh, he's living in the Persian empire. He is actually having these visions. One of the visions he has is there's a goat and it has one horn. And then there's this um, uh, ram and it has 
one small horn and a really big horn. And the, and the, and the text tells us, we don't have to speculate. The, the text says the, the, uh, the ram with the small horn and the big horn are the kings of Persia and, and Medea, Media. And I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. But uh, that's where Dan, that's Daniel's living in that time. And then it says the, the goat with the one horn, that is the king of Greece. And in this vision, Daniel sees the one-horned goat destroy the ram, the two-horned ram. And also the big horn um, is uh, the king of Persia because he was stronger than their Median uh, uh, ally. And so what happens? Who is the king who destroys the Persian Empire? Anybody know? No, they, 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 uh, the Persians actually take over more of the Mede Empire. So the Medes are between the Babylonians and the Persians. Who, who supplants? Is it Alexander? It's Alexander the Great, right. Also, who was Alexander the Great's teacher? That's right. And Alexander the Great, when he is going through, he's going through Israel, he's, he has this really long siege on, on Tyre, and Alexander the Great asks for the Israelites to help him destroy Tyre, and the Israelites, they say, no, we actually took an oath to the king of Persia, we can't help you out. And Alexander the Great gets really angry with them. And he actually, he, so he goes, uh, he goes to um, the temple, he goes to Israel, and the Israelites are having a bunch of dreams about what to do when Alexander comes. And basically the dreams are like, just chill, at, just wear, wear your garb, chill and, and, and welcome him in peace. And when Alexander the Great saw the chief priest come and welcome him, Alexander the Great said, I saw you in a dream. And you are the one who told me that God was going to be with me in taking over the Persians. And you were wearing, uh, you were wearing, the, he recognized the miter that the priests wear that says Yahweh on it, or holy to God. And, and Alexander the Great saw this in a dream. And so, and then the chief priest shows him this Daniel prophecy with the ram and the goat. And Alexander the Great goes, oh yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. So he, he even recognized, this is recorded by Josephus. Um, most people doubt it, but I think it's real. Um, so, um, so Alexander the Great sees this and he's, he's, he, um, he honors the chief priests. He honors the Jews uh, at this time and he doesn't, um, he doesn't destroy them. But what happens is that Alexander the Great's empire starts um, uh, dividing up into, his generals are divided up. And then you have what's called the Seleucid Empire. And out of the Seleucids, you have Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus comes in and he is really... Um, antagonistic towards the Jews, not friendly like Alexander the Great. Okay? And we read about this in Maccabees. So the Maccabees is the apocryphal books. And um, so in 2 Maccabees 5 and 6, we read this. Um, we see that uh, there, there are certain things happening. And it says, when these things were, uh, were reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt. And this is about Antiochus Epiphanes. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. 
He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of young women and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. Not satisfied with this, the king dared to enter the holiest temple in the world. And then Josephus says that he actually sacrificed a pig on the altar, which would be an abomination. This is sacrilege. And then he sets up idols in there as well. We read this in 2 Maccabees 6. Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to force the Jews to abandon the laws of their ancestors and to live no longer by the laws of God, also to profane the temple in Jerusalem and dedicate it to the Olympian Zeus. So they set up, they likely set up a statue of Zeus in the temple there. And this is about 200 years. It's, it's uh, 167 BC. So this is, uh, you know, 150 years before Jesus. Um, the Gentiles filled the temple with debauchery and revelry. They amused themselves with prostitutes and had intercourse with women, even in the sacred courts. They also brought forbidden things in the, into the temple so that the altar was covered with abominable offerings prohibited by the law. No one could keep the Sabbath or celebrate the traditional feast, nor even admit to being a Jew. So this causes Judas Maccabees to retreat into the wilderness and he regroups and he forms the the resistance against these Greeks who are defiling the temple. He leads a resistance. He defeats them. He makes a treaty with Rome. And then that's where Hanukkah comes from. And we have Adam Sandler singing songs about it now. So, but the point is that there was an abomination of desolate that caused the desolation, like the sacrifices ceased and Daniel called it to a T and Alexander the great even knew it. He saw that and he's like, Oh yeah, that's me. I like this God of yours. Right? So, so Daniel's calling this, but what Jesus is doing is he's using the same language and he's, he's applying it to what's coming for the Jews. And something even worse than what we just read was about ready to come uh, for them in the first century. Okay, so if we read um, in 66 AD, basically within, within Jerusalem, you have uh, a revolt against the Jews. So you have the zealots, but then you have the established priestly order and they're a bit more friendly with Rome and they're fighting each other. There's a civil war between these two. And then I think there's a third faction as well, I'm not sure. So this is happening for several years. But during this time, Vespasian is sent to squelch this rebellion. And, and, and it's, it's, it, think, of it, think of it like this. It's like the Civil War. It would be like the Civil War, except instead of the North and the South, you have like the West Coast as well. You have three people at each other's throats within the nation. And then you have a foreign, you have Nazis coming in and they're trying to impose their rule on us as well. So there, that's what Jerusalem and Israel was like at this time. And, and when Vespasian is coming in, he is conquering cities. He's putting down rebellions all throughout Israel. And it culminates really in, in the destruction of Jerusalem in the 70s. But what happens at this time is you have the, the established order um, I can't remember their names, but they are actually in the temple area and the zealots are sieging them. They're, 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 they're all, they're barricaded in there and they're keeping them from getting supplies and things like this. They think 
there's there's a counterintelligence operation which says that the ones that are held up in the siege have sent word to Vespasian to help destroy the zealots. So what the zealots do is then they ally with the Edomites who are who are still around at this time. And this is also another pattern throughout history uh, that Edomites get in on these kind of destructions of Israel. And what happens is the Edomites are brought into the city to um, destroy these people who are held up in the temple. And I think that and there was 20,000 of them who were brought in. And I think that this is another kind of army surrounding Jerusalem kind of thing. And they were let in and we read this. Now the outer temple was all of it overflowed with blood. And that day, as it came on, they saw 8,500 dead bodies there. But the rage of the Edomians, the Edomites, was not satiated by these slaughters. But they now betook themselves to the city and plundered every house and slew everyone they met. And for the other multitude, they esteemed it needless to go on with killing them. But they sought for the high priest and the generality went with the greatest zeal against them. And as soon as they caught them, they slew them. And then standing upon their dead bodies in way of jest, upbraided Ananias, Ananias, which was the chief priest, with, this, with his kindness to the people. And Jesus, which was another leader, with his speech made to them from the wall. Nay, they proceeded to that degree of impiety as to cast away their dead bodies without burial. Um, yeah, okay, so, oh yeah, and he says, I should not mistake it if I said that the death of Anan- uh, Ananus was the beginning of the destruction of the city. So this was in 68 AD. So Josephus is saying, when the Edomites came in, this was kind of the first domino before everything started falling. So this is another kind of abomination that's causing a des- desolation here. Okay, it's like the, be- it's the beginning of these things. Um, All right, so Vespasian and um, Titus, real quick here. We'll wrap things up. All right, this, I'm simply simply gonna read a lengthy quote here from Josephus, because I always talk about Jerusalem becomes this wood chipper that they're just throwing bodies into, and it's just blood everywhere. And this kind of gives you a a little taste of that. All right. So this is, this is there are, the, the armies are already in the city. So Titus resolved to storm the temple the next day, early in the morning with his whole army, and to encamp around the holy house. So Titus is actually Vespasian's son. Vespasian, uh, he gets sent back to Rome, and he's actually emperor for a while, and Titus takes over. But as for that house, God had for certain long ago doomed it to fire. And then the temple is set on fire. It's actually set on fire by the Jews who are in fighting. And then they start fighting the soldiers. Um, And it says, Now round about the altar lay dead bodies heaped one upon another, as at the steps going up uh, up to it ran a great quantity of their blood. Caesar was no way able, Caesar would be Titus, Caesar was no way able to restrain the enthusiastic fury of the soldiers. Um, And some people think Josephus is actually playing politics by kind of um, uh, uh, letting Titus off the hook here with what was happening. While the holy house was on fire, everything was plundered that came to, um, and 10,000 of those were caught, that were caught were slain. Nor was there a commiseration of any age or any reverence of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner, so that this war went round all sorts of men and brought them to destruction. 
The flame was also carried a long way and made an echo together with the groans of those that were slain. And because this hill was high and the works at the temple were very great, one would have thought the whole city had been on fire. Nor can one imagine anything either greater or more terrible than this noise. For there was at once a shout of the Roman legions who were marching all together and a sad clamor of the seditious who were now surrounded with fire and sword. The blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain were more in number than those that slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it. But the soldiers went over heaps of these bodies as they ran upon such as fled from them. And now the Romans, upon flight of the seditious into the city and upon burning the holy house itself, of all the buildings round about it, brought their incense into the temple and set them over against its eastern gate and there they did offer sacrifices to them and there they did make Titus Imperator. So at the end of our passage in Luke uh, 17, uh, what does Jesus say? What was the last thing that he said? Where the carcass is, there the eagles will be. The eagle and the carcass. He's bringing this up. Now listen to this description of the Roman army from Josephus. Then came the incense encompassing the eagle, which is at the head of every Roman legion, the king and the strongest of all birds, which seems to them a signal of dominion and an omen that they shall conquer all against whom they march. These sacred incense are followed by the trumpeters. So these incense are brought into the temple where there's these stacks of bodies everywhere. And what's on the incense? What's, what's the insignia? It's an eagle. This is, this is what I think Jesus is talking about. Where the eagle is there, the carcass will be. And it's right there in the temple. And they're making sacrifices to it as well, which there's a, there's a, a particular order of sacrifice that, uh, that the Romans made. Cameron, do you know? It's like called the improvaster or something? Yeah, I couldn't tell you. But in, in military victories, they would sacrifice like a bull, uh, something else, and a pig. And they would, they would, it would like cleanse the land and dedicate it to their gods. So again, a pig would be sacrificed to, uh, uh, right in front of these ensigns, which has the eagle. Also, there's um, uh, another aspect here of um, eagles sometimes do eat carrion. Sometimes they do eat uh, uh, dead meat, basically. So um, they're not, not, not usually, but sometimes they will. But in Deuteronomy 28, if, if the people are unfaithful to the covenant, this is what we read. And this is what we see happening. This is what I think is the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant people. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. And in Leviticus 11, eagles are listed among the things that are an abomination to eat. And so we have all of these things invading the temple. We have the sacrifices being made once again, and we have um, the, sacri- the, 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 the lawful sacrifices ceasing. And, ha- and, and, and Jesus says this, that, they, that, that this will be... Um, uh, uh, that these sacrifices will stop until the time of, well, now scratch that. Uh, it, that's something different. Okay, the, ver- the very last thing here is um, I just want to, I want to mark this as 
Actually, I, I won't read this, but Eusebius says that this is the abomination of desolation. Um, yeah, he says the abomination of desolation stood in the temple, and he, he applies it to uh, the first century here. So there is, there is uh, historical, a lot of people will say post-millennialism and these kind of preteristic readings are novel, but they're not. Um, so, uh, and you also can see this in the Middle Ages too. Not everyone's agreed, there's all kinds of, but you have people at the University of Paris saying that there's people who thinks that, think that the abomination of desolation was first century. Um, and sometimes they often hold a double fulfillment, like it's fulfilled there, but there will be a future one. Um, I just wanted to do three points here. The, thing, the things that we can learn from this uh, is, that, is that the Lord Jesus Christ brings actual judgment on the earth. Like, like sins are truly punished in real time, temporally. Of course, there will be ultimate judgment, but we see that Jesus brings very, very destructive judgment on uh, uh, those who rejected him. Those who asked that his blood be on their children. <laughs> which I think actually kind of has an interesting double meaning, but right there, there's a cur it's a curse that they're bringing on themselves. The other thing is that by reading it this way, by understanding the history of what's going on here, I think it can bring a certain amount of eschatological sanity and sobriety to the people of God, where we're not so easily duped by every person who comes along and says, XYZ thing in the news is setting up the abomination of desolation. We gotta be prepared for the great tribulation. I think we, we can understand that we suffer, that things that we suffer and there's trials that happen in the world, but that these things had a primary fulfillment and that we don't have to be biting our, our nails uh, and constantly preparing for the end of the world. And also we can affirm that there will be a final apostasy and we don't scoff at every falling away that we see. That, we, that, that it's possible that these things um, could, be the, could be the end times, though likely not. And then the last thing is what you worship will kill you. It doesn't matter. Everybody dies from the God that they worship. And what did the Jews say? We have no king but Caesar. And Caesar comes in and mows them all down. And so you can worship a God that will kill you, worship our God who will kill you, and then you live. You live a resurrected life now, and then you will live one in the future. Or you can worship these gods. You can worship Caesar. You can worship yourself. You can worship some kind of demon, and they will kill you. And when you are resurrected, you'll be dead again. You'll be thrown into uh, a judgment. You suffer a second kind of death. And so uh, it's important to be worshiping the right God and to be dying the right kind of way. Um, and, and these things have these temporal salvations attendant with them. Those who were paying attention to Jesus were like, this is what he was talking about. We got to get out of here. So these are things that uh, I think kind of bring this down to reality for us a little bit and uh, for you to uh, meditate on and, you know, implement into your lives. Okay, let's pray. The charge is this. Trust in the Lord for your salvation. There's a real earthiness and immediacy to the salvation that God gives his people from the exodus all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem. And of course, God gives us salvation in the ultimate sense, in the resurrection of the living and the dead. But of course, he warns his people, he guides his people, he saves his people from real temporal destruction, but also real uh, eternal destruction as well. He grants us eternal life, but he also grants us an abundance of life here and in this world right now.
So, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.